have to start off this morning with an acknowledgement. I had a helper this week with my sermon preparation. Uh, this is my son, Silas. That's him on the right in that photo. Um, and uh, Silas is on Christmas break, and so he came by the office during his school break and wanted to help me with my work. Uh, so I said, okay, I need to write a sermon. Can you help with that? And he was pretty surprised. He thought I was gonna have him uh, shred papers or something. Uh, he was surprised and a little daunted, but he was willing enough, so we jumped into it. Uh, and I actually wish someone had taught me some of these really basic elements of, of scripture interpretation when I was a kid, because uh, they're not that complicated. Even a kid can understand them. But they're important and helpful. Uh, so here's the first thing that we did. One of the most important pieces of scripture interpretation is context. You just heard today's scripture, and it's a beautiful, well-known story. I love this story. It's accessible to people of all ages. It's hopeful. It's fast-paced. But I want to encourage you to do what Silas and I did last week and look at what happens just outside the limits of this story in Matthew 2. Verse 14 continues. When they, the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. When Silas and I read today's scripture, uh, we saw Herod as this ominous figure. Maybe he's lying, maybe he's worried, maybe the Magi are in danger. But as we read on, Silas was shocked that Herod resorted immediately to murder. Why would he do that? It's easy and even fair to jump to the following conclusion, because Herod is a monster, right? This is an epic adventure story, and King Herod is the powerful, one-dimensional monster who only exists to inspire fear. What would possess someone to do horrible, dehumanizing things? It is perfectly fair and a fine interpretation to call him a monster. We can put him in our big book of monsters, in fact. Uh, horrible killers, evil emperors, all of the biggest villains of history. We turn the pages almost afraid to look, but not wanting to look away. Let's look at this page of our book of monsters. Uh, you can't always judge a book by its cover, but in this case, it's easy. Uh, this guy's as bad as he looks. This piece of work was named Grigory Rasputin. Rasputin was a religious charlatan, a self-proclaimed healer. He gained the trust of Russian Tsar Nicholas II and his wife and convinced them that only he could cure their son's blood disorder. He was lying. He was uh, deceiving and misleading the royal family, spreading his own myth about all the dark supernatural forces at his command. And all the while, the young prince, Alexei, got no appropriate medical care 
and got worse. Okay, I'm taking the photo down because he scares me. Uh, Rasputin shrouded himself in mystery and his myth grew and grew. When his enemies, a group of Russian nobles, assassinated him, the myth even outlived him. The story goes that his assassins tried to kill him with poison in a cake, which had no effect. They then shot him, but he ran away completely unharmed. They finally caught up to him and threw him into the river, finally ending the monster's life. What a story of this larger-than-life monster protected by dark forces, impossible to kill. But it's just a story. If you dig a little bit deeper past the legends and myths, you find that actually uh, Rasputin didn't really like sweets, and so he probably turned down the poison cake. And you find that he was already dead when they threw him into the river. In other words, the myth falls away, and he was just a person. It's a comforting fantasy, in a weird way, to think of bad people as supernatural monsters larger than life, because that leaves us free to relate only to the good guys. So maybe let's close our book of monsters and see what the history books say about King Herod. As I've said before, in the first century, the people of Judea were under foreign occupation. Um, Israel is unlucky enough to be situated at this great crossroads in trade. And so many empires over the centuries saw fit to conquer or exile or enslave them. And in the first century, the latest in that uh, list of empires was Rome. Now, Rome's method of occupation was pretty hands-off. As long as the people didn't revolt or challenge Caesar's throne, as long as they stayed quiet, then sure, they could have their own religion and culture. Why not? So the Roman Senate appointed a local ruler, Herod the Great, to rule over the region in Rome's interests. And Herod really tried to rule and be popular. Uh, he did uh, great projects that he thought would make him popular. He renovated the temple. He expanded the Temple Mount. He kept good, decent relations with Rome. And the people hated him. What a phony, they said. Rome's puppet. He pretends to be a legitimate king, but we know he was installed by Rome and is not our real king. No matter how hard he tried, Herod constantly felt in danger of losing his job. Now, job insecurity is a painful thing for anyone at any time, but I cannot overstate this. It was more fraught when you were a first century pretender to the throne. You can't job hunt, you don't get good references, and the only severance you're likely to get is, as Noah said, <laughs> Herod lived in constant, poisonous, debilitating fear of demotion and death. Silas and I looked this up. Did you know that Herod the Great killed several of his own family members? Sons and a wife worried they would betray him for the throne. Sai and I played this guessing game. Uh, I'll invite you to play with me. Herod had a personal bodyguard of soldiers. Guess how many were in his bodyguard? What do you think? Five? Five? Did you say? Twelve? 
80, 2,000. What would possess someone to do horrible things, hate and hurt their neighbor, forget the image of God in innocence? The answer is so heartbreaking and so familiar. It was just fear. Fear is so common and so mundane that I think Herod as a person is more terrifying than Herod as a monster. If Herod's worst act sprung out of fear, then he might be the most relatable person in this story. Another important element of interpretation is asking good questions. I've loved the Bible for three decades, and this is a very familiar story. But how useless would I be to you as a preacher if I read this story completely certain that I knew it perfectly, certain that it had nothing new to teach me, what if I thought, I'm familiar enough, so I've got it, thanks. So Sai and I spent some time uh, being curious about the text, looking for things that really stood out this time. And Silas had a good one. He said, oh, that's funny. Herod is a king looking for a king. Yeah, there are two kings in this story, one with weapons and a vast bodyguard and empire behind him. And then there's this other king. What's he doing in this story? You're getting ahead of me. We are still, for this one week, talking about Christmas. And I never want to pass up a chance to wonder at the incarnation. It's mind-blowing. Uh, an all-powerful God, by all rights, should be able to sit on the throne, watch us for good behavior, blast his enemies, take the spoils, soak in admiration. But those are, the ki those are the things King Herod wanted in life. That's the kind of power that king longed for. What's the other king doing in this story? Uh, he's probably crying a lot, probably sleeping a lot, uh, maybe saying a word or two, maybe not. He's not even potty training. He's too young for that. Our other king is busy in this story being held and being helpless. Instead of exploiting his power, our king emptied himself of it, humbled himself, as the Bible says, even to death on a cross, humbled himself even to infancy, What's the other king doing? Just being a baby. When the Magi left the palace, moving from one kingdom into another that was totally different, when they came to the true king, the king's parents had to receive the gifts on his behalf. His parents opened the spices, smelled them, found a place for them, packed them up for Egypt, the king was sleeping or toddling around. I asked Silas if he remembers moving, and he said he does. He remembers when we moved away from Beaumont. Uh, he says he missed it and he didn't want to leave. But it doesn't matter when you're a baby, does it? You're helpless. Jesus didn't get a vote on going or staying. This king stretched out his arms and was carried where he didn't ask to go, on a humble, dusty path. 
It's incredible to me as we read through the Gospels to see at every turn how Jesus uses his power. The kings of this world and those who have power throw their weight around, hate and hurt their enemies. And when we are at our worst, we live out of fear, throw our weight around, hate and hurt our enemies. Instead, Jesus had all the riches and authority of heaven, and he gave them up. He refused to exploit his godhood and went unerringly on that humble, dusty path. Jesus traveled with his friends and said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means very close by. And then he showed what that kingdom is like. He healed the sick. He lifted up others and invited them in. He forgave and loved his friends. He took those with deep rejection and deep trauma and moved them from one kingdom into another. From the world where they were scapegoats and bywords into the kingdom where they were loved and free to love. He chose humility at every turn. He refused to raise weapons or wield violence, even when faced with the terror of Rome. And he died with forgiveness on his lips. That's why we're saved. Because the king, with all power and authority on heaven and earth, used that power to forgive and heal the world. What's this other king doing? He's perfectly loving and perfectly safe. That's what will cure what ails us. The fear that causes us to lash out and protect ourselves at all costs, that's the same fear the king of the universe wants to heal in us if we let him. I know I'm always teasing you when I preach, saying, don't ever watch cable news, delete your Twitter, <laughs> unplug from the constant news. But this is what I'm saying. Don't live out of fear because the kings of the world deal in fear. It's useless. You are safe in his hands. Your heart and your past and your pain are safe in his hands. You won't be safe with armies or guns or elections or arguments. You'll be safe with him. He's a different kind of king, and he's inviting us into a different kind of kingdom that's very close by. In The Lord of the Rings, there's an important character named Eowyn. Uh, she's not supernatural, and she's not a king, and she's not uh, a monster, and so she doesn't get a lot of attention in this very big, flashy story. Uh, the attention she does get is mostly because she manages to kill one of the worst monsters in the books. Her sword saves the day, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's important, I suppose, but it's more important in my view that after she retires from war, she becomes a healer. Her author had seen enough of war in real life, and so war-torn, traumatized J.R.R. Tolkien took this war-torn, traumatized character and moved her from one kingdom into another, where she was free from living in violence and fear. She was free to heal, to love, to mend, to build an abundant life, 
Jesus is our king, incomparable to any other. And I want you to remember our king is not insecure or afraid or reactive. Jesus is endlessly gracious, humble, and kind, a healer, the author and perfecter of our faith. And our author moves us from one kingdom into another. Amen.